It's great to, uh, so good to be here with you. Things have, there's now, the Westminster Confession is in here. It's been cleaned out. It, it's so great to be here. And um, it, it's, I, worshiping with you was a joy, um, especially singing that song, I Asked. I haven't sung that in a long time. My heart was humbled and was appreciative of, of uh God's grace in my life and the trials that I know will come into my life as uh, um, walking in, in obedience to him. Um, and Daniel, thank you for that prayer. I've never had all my children prayed for individually before from the pulpit. That was just amazing to, to listen to. So I don't know what they were thinking at, at the time, but uh, no one, you can never say nobody prayed for you. Um, <laughs> Well, it is so good to, uh, to be with you and to see the church is continuing on many faces that I don't know or only began to know last time I was here. So uh, the last sermon I preached here when I was a pastor, I, the theme was my confidence that the Greenbelt Baptist Church will continue to do really well. And um, that confidence wasn't some sort of prophetic vision that I had or idle speculation. It was that the word of God is uh, is bears fruit and increases. Not necessarily meaning that you know, numerically every, and everything, but nevertheless, it, it bears spiritual fruit, and that's what it does. And so, um, just thankful to see in the conversations that I've had here, and the little bit that I've kept up with um, what's going on, that God is working. And maybe if you're here and, and visiting us, visiting for the first time, you have no idea what I'm, <laughs> all that I'm talking about, and this is a little bit odd for you, but uh, I think you'll find this is a, is a place that you will grow spiritually and, uh, and be welcomed, and uh, I pray that if you're attending and, um, and haven't thought about joining, I, I pray that you will uh, consider that, talk to one of the elders, and they'll be happy to help you out there. So, Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 16. Man. The number of times I've from this pulpit said, turn with me to this. Well, turn with me to Acts 16. We're going to look at verses 5, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 15. And this is the story about Lydia's conversion. Paul journeys to Macedonia to preach the gospel, and Lydia, a Greek woman, responds. It's a beautiful story. And by the way, as I hear in my notes to say, as many of you know, but now since the prayer, everybody knows that uh, we have a daughter named Lydia. And uh, she was born while we were here, and she takes her name from this story. She's excited about this sermon. I say that to you uh, so that you know, um, you know, I'm in the habit of calling her Liddy, and my kids tell me that when I preach on this passage, I call the woman in this story Liddy. Please don't understand that I shorten all the Bible characters' names, right? And we're going to look at Matt and uh, Josh, and uh, that's not what I normally do. (laughs) But uh, this, there's an exception here, because I'm thinking of my daughter. Well... Uh, Here's the story, uh, Acts 16, starting at verse 6. This is where Paul is traveling on a second missionary journey. And they went through the region of Phygera and Galatia. Notice this. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, 
Note here, Luke, the author, has now come on board. He is part of this journey. He's telling the story firsthand. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word shapes your people. And we pray now that as your word is preached, as it is explained, that you would be shaping us more and more into the image of Christ more and more into your people who are washed by your word, that we may be set apart for you, holy and blameless. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, kind of what you'd expect someone going overseas would, would talk about, right? It's a missionary journey, right? Uh, you can't really read this passage without seeing something of, of missions come out of it. You can't read the book of Acts for that matter, without seeing something of missions come out of it. And, and please understand, God has put the book of Acts here to talk about the formation of the church and the missionary mindset of the church. And, and we are that same church, right? There is continuity between Acts, that was going on there, and what's going on now. So their mission, their desire for the gospel to go forth to all nations is also our desire. It is the, what he has told us to do. It is our commission as well. Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts, you will be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what we continue to do today. And from the perspective of the Jews in Jerusalem, Philippi, the place where Paul journeyed to, was the uttermost parts of the earth. It was Gentile country. It was not in Judea or Jerusalem anymore. And what we read here is this passage is one section of Paul's second missionary journey. Just one part. There's a lot to see here. The first missionary journey was a year or so earlier when the Holy Spirit called uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, when they were in Antioch, they were praying, and he, he called them. He, he said, set them apart for the work that he has for them to do. And that work was going around Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, and, and planting, establishing churches throughout that region. And now, about a year and a half later, Paul uh, had the idea to go back and visit those churches and see how they were going. And there had also just been the Jerusalem Council, uh, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And it was important for them to go back to those churches and relate the decisions that was made about various things. But anyway, so this is the second uh, missionary journey. After the first, they're going back to visit these churches that they had established. And along the way, as they're on this second missionary journey, along the way, they get a vision. Paul gets a vision from somebody in Macedonia calling for help, calling for deliverance. And they conclude, 
that this means they must go and preach the gospel there. For what other help can really save our souls? What other help do we really need? And so they go and they preach the gospel to Macedonia. Now, they make this journey that I just read to you. They make that journey to Macedonia sound a lot easier than it actually was. We actually lived in Turkey for a few years, and I'm somewhat familiar with the train. And if you kind of plot out their journey on a map, they, they started off in the middle of modern-day Turkey, and they're walking northwest. They traveled about 600 miles. That, 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 you know, going over to Troas, that's a 600-mile journey that they travel. And if you notice, during that time, throughout the course of that journey, no doors to ministry are open to them. Walking 600 miles, that's a third of the Appalachian Trail, <laughs> walking that distance on their missionary journey, and, and ministry is closed left and right. Man, I, I went 20 miles and had no ministry opportunity. I think I conclude we should go back, right? But 600 miles there, talk about perseverance. And finally, they find themselves in the western part of Turkey, south of modern-day Istanbul, where they get the vision to cross over the Aegean Sea and come to Macedonia. That would not be an easy trip either, as it was a dangerous sea journey. But they did it. They went. They were obedient. And I think it's instructive for us to consider the difficulty of this journey. It's interesting that that doesn't even figure into their account. They don't talk about how difficult it was. They're just like, yeah, we went there. That's 600 miles on foot. I think that gives us some insight into how Paul, how Paul thought of hardships that you encounter on the way. They're just going to happen, right? Of course it's going to be hard. I mean, we're following the Savior who was crucified. <laughs> Don't be surprised when you encounter trials, friends, in the course of ministry. Well, eventually they get to the region of Macedonia. And then they're led to the particular city of Philippi, which is a leading city in those days. It was like a little Rome. And in that city, apparently, knowledge of the one true God was very limited because there isn't even a synagogue as there was in most cities. The synagogue would be the place where the Jews in that city would gather together and worship. And often Paul, when he went to a new city, would go and show up in the synagogue and would preach about Jesus. There's not a synagogue. There's some women down by the river having a prayer meeting of sorts. These women are God-fearers. Um, they're, they're worshiping the one true God, which meant they would be known as God-fearers, which meant they're not Jewish, but they revere the God of the Old Testament. They know about him, and they gather together to pray to him and to, to fellowship with one another. Um, Paul goes down to the riverside, to these women, and he preaches the gospel to them, because the gospel saves. Now, this is breaking social convention. Jewish men didn't have interactions like this with women. That's because in that culture, women would have been considered beneath them. But Paul, of course, doesn't see things that way. He sees things through the lens of the gospel. And he sees that these are, are women, people who are the image of God, who are in need of Christ. And so Paul preaches the gospel. And Lydia responds. She responds to the words of Paul. And then she is baptized in obedience to Christ. Now, who is Lydia? That's important for us to understand this story. Well, we learn from this account that she is a Gentile. She's from Thyatira. She's part of the uttermost parts of the earth where Jesus said they would witness to his, of his gospel. She's also a woman of considerable means. She's a seller of purple. 
There would have been a high cost to doing purple business back then. Apparently, she's able to meet that cost, and she's doing quite well because she has a home, and then she offers hospitality to the traveling missionaries. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, she says, stay in my house. She urges them, urges them. It's a strong word to urge them. It's interesting that the same word used, translated urge here, was also used of the man in the Macedonian vision who urged Paul to come over to help. Now Lydia urges them to stay in her house with her. It's interesting. There's that switch from please come and help us to please let me help you. That's the switch that the gospel makes. Of course, after we believe, we still need help as well, right? But there should be in those who believe the gospel a compelling desire to help in the work of the gospel. We should know, too, that her household is baptized. Now, household baptisms were common in the book of Acts. I don't think this requires us to see that infants are included in that. This is not really a proof for infant baptism. More to the point, though, is that there is fruit from Lydia's life. Her her conversion results in the conversion of others. They, They hear the gospel from her, presumably, and they are baptized as well. And then if you scan down through the rest of Acts 16... It turns out, we see, that Paul and Silas get arrested. They end up doing some prison ministry of sorts. And then they miraculously get out. And verse 40 tells us where they go when they get out. They go back to Lydia's house and visit Lydia to to check on the brothers. In other words, it seems as if the church is meeting in her house. And so they go and they fellowship with her once again. Well, what do we learn from this passage? I think we learn, at least from our initial reading, something about the importance of the gospel going forth. The gospel must be preached. Paul would later ask in the book of Romans, how will they hear without somebody preaching? And by the way, I think the book of Acts should really be read right beside along with the book of Romans. That's one of the reasons why the compilers of the New Testament put them right next to each other. The theology of Romans explains and defends Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. How will they hear without somebody preaching is the theology that motivates Paul to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth at great cost to himself. Romans also explains why the gospel must go forth. Because Paul tells us in Romans, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The Jew first and also the Greek. Note Lydia is Greek. She she is not Jewish. The gospel is going to her because it is salvation for her as well. And Paul also says in the book of Romans, how will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The book of Romans not only justifies Paul's missionary mentality, it also leads us to see that as beautiful. Friends, I wonder, is the gospel going to people, that phenomenon, the gospel going to people who've never heard it, is that beautiful to you? When was the last time you heard a story about the gospel coming to people who hadn't heard it and them responding and you were just amazed by the beauty of it? There's a lot of motivation to evangelism out there that is driven primarily by guilt. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody or don't you know that lost people are going to hell? And, you know, I think that motivation actually has a place. 
but the kind of motivation that will sustain us for the long haul and inspire us to the kind of selfless beauty, selfless labor that we see here in Paul and his companions. That kind of motivation is driven by beauty. It is the beauty of the gospel that drives us to see it go forth. And I think we see this is just a beautiful story. As I told people I was preaching on the story of Lydia, they're like, oh, I love that story. It's a beautiful story. Because the gospel going to those who's never heard it before is beautiful. And friends, when we see something as beautiful, what do we do? We want to be part of it. We want its beauty to sort of ooze into our lives. We want to get into it. And when we understand the beauty of the gospel, we want to share it. Well, I think that's what we see from this story, just kind of on the face of it. But I think there's another layer to the Lydia story that Luke and the Holy Spirit clearly intend for us to see. And I think if we see it, it reveals even more beauty. So we, we kind of opened up the first layer of the story. Let's walk in a little bit deeper. Let me ask you this. Does Lydia remind you of anybody else in Scripture? As you think through the, the Scriptures, particularly, I'll give you a clue, in the Old Testament, does she remind you of any other person or motif or figure? Let me say one thing about the book of Acts before we talk about the, the, what I think is the right answer to that question. And that is that often in the book of Acts, the way stories are told is meant to connect with something from the Old Testament. So Ananias and Sapphira, when they uh, lie about the uh, land and then are suddenly killed, that's meant, I believe, and commentators agree, to connect to Achan, the guy who committed a similar sin at the very outset of the people coming into the land, um, you know, the outset of Israel and the outset of church. There's, there's a similarity in terms of the, an, an initial sin that was committed. Or the dispute about the widows being fed in Acts 6. A lot of people agree that's meant as a throwback to the, the um, uh, Israelites complaining about food in the wilderness. The book of Acts has a lot of these connecting points to the Old Testament, throwbacks to the Old Testament. And this is meant to tell us that even though God is doing something new, and he is doing something new, that's unmistakable, right? Behold, I'm doing a new thing, God says. It's still connected to what he was doing before as one grand story from beginning to the end. So we're taught to read the book of Acts with the Old Testament in mind, looking for connections. Where else in Scripture do we see a woman engage in business and use her wealth to care for others? Where else in Scripture do we find somebody who exemplifies hospitality? Where else do we see a woman who is judged highly, who is praised, who fears the Lord? Where else do we encounter a woman who deals in purple cloth? Proverbs 31, right. Of course, she's not a specific woman, but it's hype, an example of godliness. Don't lose your place in Acts, but turn over to Proverbs 31. And this isn't a connection I made up. Commentators uh, point this out. Um, one theologian in particular, Mark Garcia, helped point this out to me and, and understand the connections. Um, let me read for you Proverbs 31, starting at verse 10, and, and we'll see some of these connections. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. 
She seeks wool and flax and works with her hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches her hands out to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. In scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are in her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and, teaches of, and teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done exceedingly, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and her, let her works praise her in the gates. Now, we don't have time to talk about all of this in detail. But I think what emerges here from this uh, extolling of this woman is a picture of a woman who is strong and who has skills and energy to bless those who are under her care. And that's also what Lydia does. Both women have a business sense to them. The idealized woman in Proverbs 31 is praised for buying and selling, working with her hands. Lydia, too, engages in the purple cloth business. And the fact that she owns a home that is large enough for the church to meet there would suggest that she has done well. But even more, there's a connection with how they use their wealth, right? They share. The woman in Proverbs 31 shares with the poor. There's a play on words here. She, the hand that she uses to grasp the spindle, she then opens to care for the poor. Lydia also opens her home to the apostles and to the church. But most of all, there's a connection in their character. The woman in Proverbs 31 fears the Lord. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is praised. And Lydia, in the beginning of this story, is introduced as a worshiper of God or otherwise known as a God-fearer. And at the end of the book, she is given the highest honor of anybody in the book of Acts. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, she says, come to my house. And they do come to her house because she is faithful. She is judged to be faithful. In sum, Lydia is a virtuous woman worthy of praise. But for all of those similarities, there is one very conspicuous difference. Proverbs 31 has a center to it. We call this in poetry a, a chiastic structure. The beginning and the end mirror each other, and they are like arrows that point to the center. In Proverbs 31, there's one verse that occurs at the very center of this passage, and it's the only verse in the whole thing that is not directly about the woman, and that's verse 23. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see it there. 
her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders in the land. It's interesting. Almost all of the woman's activities are not directed to her husband, right? It's about her children. It's about the maidens. It's about the poor. And yet in all that she does, with the kind of character that she has, her husband is lifted up and exalted. Now, contrary to how this passage is used, it's its primary application is not first to women to know how to model their character. It's, it's actually written for single men to know how to find, um, to know the kind of woman they should marry and then value for their whole lives. And if we look at the preamble to this poem in verses 1 to 9, we see that this is especially the kind of woman you're to marry if you happen to be the king. There's a kind of woman, according to verse 3, that brings down kings, but this kind of woman, she lifts them up. In fact, if reading verses 1 through 9, it's possible, even likely, to read this as the woman being the crown, the woman as the king's glory. Mark Garcia says that we could illustrate Proverbs 31 by having the man in the middle and the woman act as two glorious wings that lift him up. But if that's the structure of Proverbs 31, and if Lydia is the Proverbs 31 New Testament woman, it naturally raises the question, where is Lydia's husband? Where is the man that she lifts up at the city gates? And even more importantly, who is the king that Lydia crowns? Because there's nothing in this text to suggest that she has a husband and everything to suggest that she's not. In fact, it would be normal for her husband to be mentioned and he's just not there. Maybe he divorced her for a younger woman, as was common back then. I mean, to say that Lydia is the New Testament Proverbs 31 woman is to say that she honors and lifts up her husband, but she does seem to have a husband. Or, or does she? Let's look back at Acts 16 and, and see if we didn't perhaps miss some things along the way. If we think back to Paul's missionary journey and his movement to Lydia, we'll notice here in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit works in Paul and his companions in ways that we see nowhere else in the book of Acts. It's normal in the book of Acts for the Holy Spirit to be directing missionaries here and there, right? Peter is led to Cornelius' house. The Spirit took Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. But nowhere else in the book of Acts do we have the Spirit telling a missionary not to go somewhere, right? Which is exactly what we have here in the book of Acts over the course of this 600-mile journey. That's unprecedented. It, the Holy Spirit is saying, not here, not here, not here, over here. Not Asia, not Bithynia, not, not, not Macedonia in general, to Philippi and to these people and to this woman down by the river. And if we notice... Who exactly is directing them? We'll see that it is the Spirit of Jesus. Nowhere else in the whole Bible do we read that phrase, the Spirit of Jesus. Jesus is active. Jesus is present. He is working in Paul and his missionary gang to lead them exactly where he wants them to go. The Spirit is, of course, active in all ministry. But most of the Bible, that's assumed rather than outright stated. Here it is emphasized. And notice, the same Jesus who brought Paul to Lydia is the Lord who then opens Lydia's heart to respond to what Paul is speaking about. 
Now, everyone who believes is a believer because the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, has opened their hearts, but nowhere is it talked about that directly, as right here. The Lord Jesus opens her heart to respond. And then Lydia does respond, and she is baptized to show her union with Christ. And then Lydia is faithful to Christ. If you have found me to be faithful to the Lord, she says, come and stay in my house. And they do come, which means she is found to be faithful. Overall, the language about Lydia's conversion is different than anything else we find in the book of Acts. In fact, there's, there's some uh, commentaries written by unbelievers uh, who actually say Lydia's story just doesn't fit with everything else. Acts is very almost formulaic in its presentation of how things go. And Lydia's story just doesn't seem to fit. I think they've stumbled upon something there. Lydia's story is not just one story among, among many. She's not just one convert among many. Lydia, Lydia is uniquely sought after by Christ. I believe, because Lydia is a picture of the church who is uniquely sought after by her husband, the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Lydia is a real woman here. Right? I mean, Paul really did go by down, down by a river, and she, this woman really did listen to the gospel, and she really did respond. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do is highlight one woman in the book of Acts and say this is a picture of what the whole thing is about. As the song says, from heaven he came and sought her. Jesus is seeking his bride. He is seeking his church. And in Proverbs 31 fashion, not everything that Lydia does is explicitly directed to the Lord. Right? She cares for the apostles and the members of the church. But in all that she does, she lifts up her Lord. As Jesus said, what you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. So she does have a husband of sorts. As she is a picture of the church, Jesus is her husband who has sought her, and she lifts him up. Now, question about interpretation there. Is that twisting Proverbs 31 to mean something different? I don't think so. Let me ask you this. Is Proverbs 31 really just about the character qualities of a woman that a um, that, that should be there for a man to, to seek him in marriage? Is it just a list of character qualities for a woman to aspire to? Now, it obviously is that. But is that all that it's about? Well, consider the fact that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. In the beginning, there's a marriage between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And in the end, there's the marriage between Christ and the church. The book of Revelation says, Behold, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. In other words, looking at the grand story of the Bible, history is going somewhere. It's, it's going to, it's headed to the consummation between God and his people. And we're, thought to, we're taught to think of that relationship between God and his people as a marriage of sorts. So marriage is not just about marriage. It's about God. It's about God loving his people and seeking his people. Marriage is given as an illustration of God's heart for his people. Paul understands marriage this way. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But you know, if we read Proverbs 31 in this light, 
as it's pointing to that ultimate marriage. There's a sad irony to it. And that is the kind of character that we see in this woman as pointing to the character that God's people must have is not at all the kind of character that Israel had as a whole in their relationship with God. Israel is pictured as a wife of Yahweh, but her ability to live up to the Proverbs 31 model is a dismal failure. Sometime read the book of Ezekiel and, and read chapter 16. It describes in very graphic language how God's people have prostituted themselves. They have gone after other lovers. They've not lived, lifted up their husband, but they've shamed him in the strongest way they could have by running after other lovers. In fact, Israel has actually acted exactly like the kind of woman that Proverbs says, don't go near her. But not only Israel. We have all, in our sinfulness, rejected and spurned God's love. And yet God, in his kindness, has set his love on his people anyway. God's covenant faithfulness means that even though we've sinned and mocked God, and shamed him. He loves his people. And he pursues his people. He pursues his people by sending his son to come down in human form and take upon himself all the sin and the shame that we have and to do away with it on the cross and then to transform his people into that image of the spotless and radiant bride. You know, that theme of the people having prostituted themselves, I think that might actually be part of the Lydia story. Lydia is from the city of Thyatira, which, get this, is in a region. The region's name is Lydia. Lydia is a region. It is a region known for its sexual immorality. In fact, in a lot of writings that emerge from this time of the New Testament, there's the phrase, the Lydian girl, which means the prostitute. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that Lydia in this story is a prostitute, but she is from that part of town. And it would be impossible for the, the first century readers of this story to have disassociated that, from, uh, the, disassociated that prostitution from Lydia when they read this story. But God is seeking his people, even in their sinfulness. And he's seeking them to change them and make them faithful. The other thing we see in the Lydia story is who this people is, who these people are. It's not simply the Jewish nation. Lydia is most certainly not Jewish. The Holy Spirit has sent Paul well outside of the Jewish region to this very Gentile city. He's doing that to make a point about who God's people are. It's not just one ethnic group, but all nations. In fact, if we were to zoom out from Acts 16 for just a minute and see that Acts 15 is about the Jerusalem Council. That's where the leaders of the church, uh, through the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit, concluded that the Gentiles ought to, ought to be included in the church on the same footing of the Jews. And part of the reason for Paul's second missionary journey is to take that Jerusalem Council decision around to the various churches. And what better way for the Holy Spirit to illustrate that decision 
than to have the very first convert from this missionary trip to be a Gentile woman from a godless region. I think that's what's going on in this passage. Let me just draw your attention to a few points of application. Number one, revel in being sought after by Christ. Revel in being sought after by Christ. In other words, put yourself in the situation of Lydia and as, as the church that is sought after by Christ. And from heaven he came and sought us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, embrace your identity as the unworthy bride sought after by the most worthy husband. Consider that there was nothing in us that drew God's affection to us. And yet he set his love on us anyway. He pursued us anyway. No husband has ever condescended lower to receive his bride to himself. And no husband has ever had more passion to be with his bride than Christ. He prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that those, with whom, that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. If the marriage metaphor between Christ and the church teaches us anything, it is that there is an intensity of love involved. He loves us with a great love. How beautiful is Christ? How beautiful are his feet, which were pierced in pursuit of his bride, that his bride may be made whole. And when we see ourselves as the bride of Christ, who is loved by Christ, we must not see ourselves as that individually, but corporately. We are the bride of Christ. He has set his love upon us. And so his love not only draws us towards him, but also draws us to one another. So revel in being sought after by Christ. Number two, respond in faithfulness. The beauty of God's sovereign love is that even though it comes to us when we are unfaithful, it changes us to make us faithful. The name Lydia might have once conjured up images of sexual immorality, but now it conjures up images of faithfulness because Lydia was faithful to Christ because Christ made her so. And the faithfulness of the church matters because that faithfulness brings honor and glory to Christ. If Christ is the bridegroom, and if we are the bride, then in Proverbs 31 fashion, our job as the church is to be those glorious wings that lift Christ up. Our job is to reflect his glory in every sphere of our lives, individually and especially corporately. Now please understand, it's not that God somehow is lacking of glory and we must supply it. No, 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 that's not the case of all, at all. But God has made a plan before the foundation of the world that he would send his son to take on human flesh and concerning the human Christ, the, the God-man Christ, the glory of his son would be forever tied to the people that he's united to. The glory of Christ would be put on display only with the, at the fullness of the bride. That's God's plan. And so that's why he washes us with the water of his word, that we might be that radiant, spotless bride adorned for her husband. And that's why on that final day, we will stand before him wearing white robes, which the Bible tells us is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
we become beautiful. How beautiful is the church as she is adorned with righteousness for her husband. And finally, may we be fruitful. That's the third point of application. May we be fruitful. Lydia is Lydia displays a kind of motherliness to her fellow believers. She implores Paul and his companions to come over to her house. She shows them hospitality. It's quite possible the church is meeting in her house. And if we establish a link between Proverbs 31 and Lydia, we, we see that care and hospitality is just the mark of what we ought to do. And if we think about it, this care and hospitality is something that we see not just in Lydia, but all over the New Testament, and not just by women either. Paul talks about his care for people in very motherly terms when he says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. And Paul says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, Lydia is displaying here the, the, an example of that virtue that we see valued so highly in the New Testament, of this nurture and care that's spoken of in motherly terms that, that we must display towards others, especially other believers. And this is something not just for the women's ministry to take care of. Look, Paul is talking about this here, right? If Paul was a nursing mother to his fellow believers, men, do you think you will be anything less? Men, if you're here aspiring to be a, an elder, a leader in the church, you should be an example of this kind of tender care for the flock. The church needs men to act like men by tenderly caring for the sheep. And the church should care for its own, just as Lydia cared for the apostles who brought her the word. And she cared for the church by nurturing it in her house. In other words, the bride of Christ is also the mother church. Both bride and mother are motifs of the church that we see clearly in Scripture. And I think to get our ecclesiology right, we have to embrace both. Which is to say, we must both love God and our neighbor, our fellow believer. We must worship God and have the kind of religion, according to James, that takes care of the orphans and the widows. We must revel in God's love for us, and we must love others. Now, there's lots of ways we could apply this last point here, but I want to make the application related to the theme of missions that we see running throughout this passage. Here's the question I want to leave with you. What does, the, what does it look like for the church to be motherly, not just towards those people who are, are in immediate vicinity, who need care? Now, we should do that for sure. But what does it look like for the church to be that motherly, nurturing, caring body also for the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world whose needs, quite frankly, dwarf ours most of the time? And here, I don't have answers for everything, but, but questions to consider. What does it look like for the church to be motherly, that is, care and nurture, 
the persecuted church in China and North Korea and Iran? What does it look like for the church universal to care for the families of the pastors and church members who have been killed and imprisoned? What does it look like for the church universal to come alongside the church in Africa as it is caring for and evangelizing the millions of orphans that have been left because of AIDS? And finally, the question that's motivating our family to move to Africa. What does it look like for the church to care for those places of the world where the church is growing, people are being converted, but there is a distinct lack of theological resources and theological education. In the Gospel Coalition, a, an evangelical organization calls what's happening in Africa and other parts of the world a, quote, theological famine. That's where the, the Christian population is growing rapidly. But pastors and church leaders have very, very few resources. In fact, what's often happening is that the church is growing precisely in the place, same places where a false gospel is growing right next to it. it. The church is growing in the context of Islam, and it's growing in the context like the true gospel is growing right next to the, the prosperity gospel, which wrongful, wrongly teaches that if you just have enough faith, God will give you health and everything else you need. In other words, the need for theological equipping is often greatest in places where pastors have the least access to it. So you see, in many places of the world where the church is growing, it's growing right next to errors that are threatening to come and take that gospel away. And those are the places where there's the least amount of theological access for the pastors to be able to sort those things out and think through how to clearly refute that error. The idea of the church caring for the church is really a major motivation for us to go to Africa and invest in the church, in the pastors and the church leaders there. Why are we going to Africa? Because we are all one body in Christ. And part of the body over there needs some help that we can offer. We're going to Africa because it just makes sense to take some of the resources that we have here over there. Our kids have asked us, as they're realizing that, well, we're the only family we know that's moving over to Africa. Is it normal to, uh, to pick up and move to Africa? And in one sense, it's very normal. It's very normal for the body of Christ to care for the body of Christ. It's normal for us to share the resources we have with those in need. It ought to be as normal to move over to Africa and help the church over there as it is for you to give up your Saturday morning to help a family member in need. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We really are one body. We are members of one another. And so when there's a need, the church should meet it. I don't think that means everybody needs to pick up and move to another part of the world, although you shouldn't rule it out too quickly either. But you should take seriously the real connections between us, between you and the believers, not only in your immediate area, that's a real connection that you ought to take very seriously as well, but you ought to also take seriously the connection between you and the other believers throughout the world. You should ask yourself, how can I participate in the church's mandate to take the gospel to all nations and care for the parts of the body of Christ where there is need? 
one of the first things you can do is pray. And that's not just if you can't do anything else. <laughs> that's in some ways the most important of all. You can pray, and perhaps it will be helpful in your prayer life if you find out more information about the church so you can pray more specifically. How is the church in China different than the church in Africa and different than the church in India? Before I went overseas and started learning about the church, it was just America and everywhere else, as if there was just two different categories. And that's honestly a very self-centered way to look at it. There are very great differences throughout the world, and if we know them, we can pray more specifically that God would meet those needs in the different areas. The motive, though, to pray and to give and to perhaps go, the motive is the beauty of it all. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful is the gospel? And how beautiful is the church going forth to those parts of the world to meet those needs and bring the gospel? But, but please don't misunderstand. I have to correct a perhaps wrong understanding that I may have given you that would be terribly wrong if I, if I left you with this assumption. The assumption is not that we over here have all the resources and they over there have all the needs. That's not the picture. We have some resources and some needs. <laughs> and and the, the motherly motif, that motherly image goes both ways. It's not that we are the ones who are going to care for everybody else. No, there's a mutual caring and needing of care that runs throughout the body of Christ. Yes, theological education and some other things might be strengths that we have over here, but there are great strengths that the body of Christ has throughout the world. The brothers and sisters in Christ who've been living in extreme poverty or have walked through losing so many people because of AIDS or who are living in a place of persecution where they know what it's like to see their church dwindling in attendance because they're being taken away, we have a lot to learn from them. As I said before, <clears throat> or at least said in the Sunday school, there is a growing church in Zambia. Many of the things about the church are incredibly strong. We we're going to Zambia for two reasons. One is to take our resources that we have and share with them. And the other is to learn and grow as we serve alongside of African brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, if we remain isolated and just live within ourselves, not only do we not give the kind of care and help we need to give to other believers, but we also don't receive the kind of help we need from them as well. Well, we see at least there's number of applications we can make from this. But seeing from heaven he came and sought the church, we should revel in the beauty of Christ. We should be faithful to our, our, our husband, Lord, our Savior. And we should display the care and love to the other believers that he wants us to. Let's pray.